I'm going to like to ask you to silence your electronic devices. I've got two of them, so I have to do double duty, make sure those are, are down. Helps us uh, keep our mind on, uh, on worship, which is the most important thing. Uh, this morning, singing will be led by Ronnie Mullinax, opening prayer by Tommy Ayers, closing by Ben Painter. Uh, Mark Howell will bring us the lesson of the hour. So with that, at this time, we'll go ahead and turn the services over. Let us pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that you are the only true God. We know that all blessings come from you. You are the creator of all things. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to meet in this manner this day. We pray for those that are not able to meet with us. We have much sickness and various health problems among our members and among our community. We pray for each one and each family. We pray that they would be healed. There are numerous ones and it's listed in our bulletin. We ask that you bless each one. We also have members and, and friends that have lost loved ones. Father, it's It's hard, but we pray that we would not lose faith, that in some way our faith might be increased. We pray for each one as they mourn their loved ones. Give them strength, we ask. Father, we at this time would like to ask you to bless our nation. We ask that those in power would look to your word for guidance that we would continue to have freedom and that you would bless our nation 
if we would follow your word. We pray for all nations. We pray for those that are hungry and seek the world over. We pray that this virus would would soon pass. The vaccines would be successful in controlling it. We pray, Father, that some good would come from this. It's hard, but we have seen results of goodness because of the virus. We sometimes fail you, Father. We, we do things we shouldn't. We say things that we should not. We ask for your forgiveness. As we worship you in this manner this day, we pray that our worship would be acceptable that we would be lifted up by your word. We ask these blessings and give you thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stands for singing a song this morning. <clears throat>
Good morning. It's so good to see everybody here today. So glad that you've been able to get out and be with us. We appreciate the fact that you've chosen to do that. We know that there are still many who can't do that, and we are praying for them that the day will come when they can, and those who are sick, that they will indeed be healed, be able to be back up and about their daily activities before too long. As we begin our lesson this morning, I want to call your attention to something that happened back in 1944. Matter of fact, June 6, 1944, probably just about everyone here has heard of D-Day. Now, we talk about how they stormed the beaches of Normandy and all of the battles that went on. And I have heard from some who uh, were there or were in that uh, particular arena that the movie Saving Private Ryan is probably one of the closest depictions as they storm the beaches of Normandy that uh, has ever been portrayed. And so it's a very bloody thing. It's a very bad battle. Matter of fact, some 10,000 Allied forces were killed, including 6,603 Americans on that day. And in addition to that, there were as many as 9,000 Germans who were killed on that day for around 19,000 people who lost their life in the, in the storming of the beaches at Normandy on D-Day. But as we think about that bloody battle and how bad it must have been, according to historians, that's not the bloodiest battle that has ever taken place. Matter of fact, there was a, a website that I found according, uh, that, that's called militaryhistory.org, and according to them, the five bloodiest battles in history were number five, Gettysburg, uh, back in the Civil War, 46,000 Union and Confederate soldiers were killed, 23,000 on each side. Uh, the next, number four, was the Battle of Cannae in 216 B.C., where some 10,000 Carthaginians and 50,000 Romans were killed. The next, number three, the first day of the Psalm, in July of uh, 1916, 60,000 British and 8,000 Germans were killed for a total of 68,000 people on that day. The Battle of Leipzig in 1813, 30,000 French and 54,000 Austrian, Prussian, and Russian uh, soldiers were killed for a total of 84,000. And then the Battle of Stalingrad in 1943, where 841,000 uh, Germans were killed, and 1,130,000 Russians were killed, or those who were members of the Soviet Union, for 1,971,000 people who were killed. Now that doesn't even begin to take into account those great battles that we read about in the Bible, and the thousands and thousands and thousands that were killed on one day as we read about from the very Word of God. And so we know that there have been multiple battles where multiple, multiple, multiple people have lost their life in those battles. Tough enemies that they were facing against each other. But as we think about life and we think about the things that we sometimes encounter in life, some things are not always uh, real, some, some things are fantasy, if you will, we know Superman had his uh, arch enemy in Lex Luthor. We know that Batman had the Joker. But you know what? As we think about enemies and arch enemies, if you will, it may be that you and I face the toughest enemy of all. And when we think about that, the toughest enemy of all, Larry, I'm not clicking, 
The toughest enemy of all is self. You and I must face that tough enemy of self. Someone has said that self is the toughest enemy of most. Most people have to fight the battle of self. A writer by the name of Michael Waronko published an article and he said, here are eight reasons why your worst enemy is yourself. Let me just briefly run through those. He says, you don't manage your uh, expectations. You fail to appreciate the small things. You take too much for granted. You're your own worst critic. You overanalyze. You prefer the easy way, you assume, and you doubt yourself. And, and as you read through the article, Wurunko we'll, we'll makes some very valid, valid observations. But I'm not sure that he paints the entire picture. I'm not sure that he gives us everything that we need to know about self being our toughest enemy. If we go back through history and we think about the Greek philosophers, the Greek philosophers said something like this, know yourself. When we think about the ascetics, that is those who, who uh, practice so much self-discipline and, and, and abstaining from things that... Uh, that, that they thought was indulgence, they said, contain yourself. When we think about the hedonists, that is, those people who are in everything for pleasure, they said, enjoy yourself, but Jesus said, deny yourself. That's what Jesus said. Look at the book of Luke chapter 9 at verse 23. The Bible says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We've heard that passage a number of times. I've preached about it uh, uh, several times, thinking about the idea of denying ourselves. Brother Wayne Jackson makes this observation. He said, when human beings dethrone God from their lives and crown self, they are ravaging their own mental serenity. Someone said of Jesus, if only we were as sane as he because of all the balance that he showed in his life. But as we think about Jesus, we know that he was one who set an example for you and me in denying ourselves. Now, we talked about Jesus last year. Our, our whole theme for the year was, was seeing Jesus. But we need to remember that Jesus set the prime example of denying himself. Look at the book of Philippians chapter 2 at verse number 7. Paul says, But emptied himself, talking about Jesus, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. What does it mean to empty oneself? Well, it simply means to completely remove or eliminate elements of high status or rank by eliminating all privileges and prerogatives associated with such status. Now, I know that's a long uh, definition, but what Jesus did was this. He had every element of high status. In other words, when we think about Jesus, he was in heaven and he was God. And as God, he created. And so not only did he have the idea or the, the element of status, but he also had the privileges and the prerogatives of it because even he could say to, the, to, to, to nothing. He could say, let there be light, and there was light. And he could speak, and all of the things that we know could come into existence. 
And so he had all of that. But Jesus divested himself of every single bit of that to come down here and live on this earth so that he could die for you and me. Jesus denied himself. We know Paul said he emptied himself. We know he denied himself. As we consider that, look at the book of Galatians chapter 1 at verse number 4. The Bible says, "...who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father." Not only did Jesus empty himself, but Jesus gave. Jesus turned around having, having denied himself, having emptied himself, but he turns around and makes others more important than himself, if you will. And so he gave himself, according to the book of Galatians chapter 1, at verse number 4, and if we're going to deny ourselves, that's exactly what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to empty ourselves of self, and we're going to have to begin to give. In the book of Matthew chapter 20, at verse 28, The Bible says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. Again, the idea of Jesus giving Himself, but as you back up to the first part of that verse, He is willing to serve, become a servant of others. The one who could say to everything there was, or or, or when there was nothing, and, and say Uh, for everything there is to come into existence, didn't come so that people would bow down and serve Him, but He came to serve. And we're talking about the toughest enemy. And we're talking about the toughest enemy that most of us in this audience face is self. And Jesus set the example for us. As we consider that, I want us to look at three things this morning. And I want to come to, come to an understanding of, of what it is that, that we're needing to learn. What it is in these tough times. Remember, we've started out this year, we've talked about David killing a giant. We've talked about how that, uh, how that if we're going to do that, we have to trust in God. But in order for us to be able to trust in God, we've got to give Him a place in our life. And as long as self is up here on top, then we don't have... God in the right, right spot. Now, let's continue on. Men and women tend to be self-willed. They tend to be self-willed. Look at the book of Titus chapter 1 at verse number 7. Paul writes and says, For an overseer, he's talking about elders here, now, he uses the term overseer for, uh, for elder. He said, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, where in that is the idea of one being self-willed? Well, it's a word that we we might not necessarily associate with it, but in reality it is. It's the word that's translated arrogant in the English Standard Version here. Sometimes we think of the word arrogant as meaning a person who thinks that he or she is better than everyone else. We, we tend to put that in our own mind, don't we? don't we? But why do you think that is? Why does one think that he is better than someone else or that she is better than someone else? Doesn't that have to do with 
this idea, this concept of self-will? Indeed, it does. As you look at this passage, this passage that we're looking at in Titus chapter 1 at verse 7, as I've already mentioned, refers to one who would be qualified to serve as an elder, a leader in the Lord's church. But I want you to note something here. An elder must be minus of self-will, must not be arrogant, before he becomes an elder. So what does that mean to us? What's the thing that we need to, to learn from it? Well, the thing that we need to learn from it is this. It means that it is the duty of every Christian to not be arrogant, to not be self-willed. Look at the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. As we look at this passage, there are some who are self-willed. They, they are those who are, are willful, as Peter would put it here, and as it's translated for us here. But these people are the ones who, if you look at the passage, tend to be those who persecute God's people. But I want you to also understand and think about the fact that God knows how to rescue the godly from all of these trials that they're being put through by those who are self-willed. As you think about our day and the, day, the, the, the times in which we live, we know that there are those who, who are perhaps overreaching in, in our society. But it's always been that way. It was that way when Jesus was alive on the earth. The Roman emperors considered themselves as God, and yet Jesus knew his father and knew that he was still in control and knew that God knows how to rescue those who are his people from all of the things that we go through, from all of the trials that we face. God knows how to rescue his people. He knows how to dispense punishment to the evil, self-willed person. Look at the last part uh, of that passage. He he has uh, kept or is keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows how to dole it out. And, and we can rest assured that He will do that and that they will be punished. They may not be punished here on earth. It may not be in this life. They may, may continue throughout the rest of their life to, to gain more and more power and, and to persecute more and more. But I would... I direly hate to be in their shoes when they stand before God and they find out who is truly in control. God knows how to deliver His people. And so when we're thinking about self-will, as Christians we can't be self-willed, but... As Christians, we really and truly don't need to be as concerned about others who are self-willed as sometimes we make ourselves. If God is in control and God sees and He knows about the willful 
and God will punish those who are that way, let's leave it in the hands of God. Isn't that what we've been talking about over the past two or three lessons? We need to leave it in the hands of God. Now, why is self-will so bad? Why is it such a, a bad thing, especially for a Christian? Well, a couple of things. that Let me just point these out for us this morning. Number one, because it leads to anger. It leads to anger. Uh, and particularly, particularly, it leads to anger against those who do not agree with us. Doesn't it? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse number 8. Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, now watch the last part of this verse, without anger or quarreling. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, he begins talking about prayer. And as he talks about prayer, he begins to talk about the fact that when we come together, if you will, I have some rules and regulations, and this is being uh, uh, de delivered to, to Paul by God through the Holy Spirit. He said, I have some rules and regulations. He said, I want men to pray, and, and this is not just mankind, this is the males, men in general. If you go on down uh, verse 9 and following, you know that he puts that into uh, contrast with uh, the females. Uh, when we come together, and he says that, that he uh, suffers not a woman to speak or things like that. But he says, I want men to pray. Whenever we come together, whenever we're in uh, the public assembly, he said, I want men to pray. But I don't want just any man to pray. That's what we need to get out of this passage. A lot of times we talk about that it's men who pray. He said, I want men to pray, but I don't want just any man to pray. He said, I want a man who can lift up a holy hand. Now that doesn't mean, as sometimes you see, that people are holding up their hands. That's not the concept that, that Paul is writing about here. What Paul is talking about when he says lifting up holy hands is this person has a life that is right with God. And what he has in mind here in particular, and he says it, is that a person who is bearing anger or who is willing to make a quarrel, he doesn't have holy hands. And his prayer is not heard by God. Why is self-will so bad? It leads to anger. And if we're a person running around with anger in our life, I can't even pray to my God. That's why it's so bad. And that's why we as Christians need to, to put a check on it to make sure that we, that we don't hold that in our heart. You know, the only way to keep anger from coming to church is to keep it out of our own heart, to make sure it doesn't enter there, to make sure it doesn't take up residence there. Whatever it is out here in our world that's causing these things Maybe because we're not getting our way that leads me to anger, I've got to make a check on my life if I want to be right with my God. And so, number one, it leads to anger. Number two, it leads to bitterness. We're talking about the idea of, uh, of uh, 
Well, let me, let me just back up here before I do that. Let's go to James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. still about this anger thing. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what does that tell us? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When I'm self-willed, I become angry because of it. It doesn't lead me in the right path. It doesn't produce righteousness like God wants us to be. So I thought I'd better back up and give you fill in that blank. Now let's go on. Bitterness. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Somebody may be asking, well, what is bitterness? Well, somebody defined bitterness in, this, in simply this way. They said bitterness is anger that's gotten infected. In other words, you know, if you get a cut and you don't take care of it, that cut is liable to get infected, okay? may get red, may have, may have some kind of discharge that comes from it. And that's what bitterness is. We let that anger sit there and, and, and let it seethe within us and we become bitter, bitter people. But what's the problem? We ask the question, why is, why is self-will so bad? Well... I can allow that bitterness that springs up to cause me to fail to obtain the grace of God. Now remember we talked about the anger and we said I can't pray to God in the right way because I can't lift up a holy hand. But my soul is in jeopardy. The only way that you and I are ever going to be saved is by the grace of God. Right? And so if I allow whatever's affecting me out here in this world if I allow that to cause me to become angry and that anger gets infected and I become bitter, I may lose my soul over it. That's why self-will is so bad. I don't want to lose my soul, do you? I've got to get rid of it. I've got to make sure that it's not a part of my life. Matter of fact, that's what the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. One becomes a Christian. We've got to empty ourselves of all of these things that come along with self-will. Number two, men and women tend to be filled with self-pity. Remember, our whole thing is talking about self, but we tend to be filled with self-pity along the way. Uh, growing up, did your mother ever ask you something like this? And you may recognize the tone. What are you doing? Anybody recognize that, that, that phrase, that tone a little bit? What are you doing? <sighs> a lot of folks, when they heard that, knew they were about to get into trouble. You know, what are you doing? You knew that you were just on the, right on the very edge. You knew that something bad was about to come. I know that God doesn't speak to us today 
as He did to the prophets in the days gone by. But what if He did, and what if God asked you, what are you doing? What if God were to ask you that? Do you realize that God actually asked that in the Old Testament? In the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face and his cloak and went out and stood. This is a small voice, quiet voice. Went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing? And he adds the word here. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> now imagine Elijah hearing that from God. If, if when your mother or when your daddy said that to you as you were growing up and it might have struck fear in you because you knew something bad was about to happen because you was probably doing something bad. What if God said it? Elijah, what are you doing here? Verse 14. He said, I've been here, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. What is Elijah doing there? Well, Elijah answers. Elijah says, let me put it in my words, I'm here throwing a pity party. I'm the only one that ever serves God anymore. Everybody else has done forsaken Him. I'm here. I'm the ones left alone. I'm here throwing a pity party, God. When God asked him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He might as well have said, well, God, I'm just here throwing a pity party. Because that's what he is doing. He's throwing a pity party. When times get tough, we must never allow ourselves to start throwing a pity party. Self-pity is not good for us. And we must never allow ourselves to start throwing a pity party. Now what was God's solution for Elijah? Look at verse uh, 15. Well, there it is. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. What is it that he says? Get up and go. Get up and do your job. Now, what he was allowing to happen was that his self-pity was robbing him of his emotional tranquility. And that's what it does for us as well. It will rob us of our emotional tranquility. And that's what had happened to Elijah. He's in his pity party. But God said, get up. God said, get up and go. This is my solution. Well, if you're throwing a pity party over what all is going on around you, what's our solution? Our solution in get up is get up and do what Christians are supposed to do. Just like God told Elijah, get up and go do your job. Go anoint the king. We get up and we do what Christians are supposed to do. Now, what are we supposed to be doing as Christians? Obviously, I can't tell everything this morning. 
But let me give you a couple of ideas. We need to be telling others about Jesus. Especially going through the problems that we have now. We better quit complaining about the problems and having the pity on ourselves as to what we might lose and start doing our job telling others about Jesus. What am I supposed to do as a Christian? I need to be helping others as best I can. What am I supposed to do as a Christian? I need to be bombarding the throne room of God with prayer. That's what I need to be doing. And we have to do that, as we talked about last week, without being double-minded. We need to trust in God to carry out His plan. That's what I'm, as a Christian, supposed to be doing. Christians tend to throw pity parties. We tend to get caught up in self-pity because of what we might not have anymore. But that's not good because Jesus said, deny yourself. And that is one of the toughest enemies that anybody can ever face. Number three, men and women tend to become self-righteous. Self-righteous. Look at the book of Philippians chapter 3 at verses 8 and 9. Paul wrote, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul gave up virtually everything. He was a rising star among the Pharisees. He was set to become one of the most powerful men in Israel. He was rising through the ranks as fast as anyone could ever. He had a great education, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. He was chosen by those who are of the Jewish religion to go out and be the one who tracked down the Christians and stomped it out because they knew he could do it. And Paul said, I gave it all up. To gain Christ. Now, he could have thrown a pity party over what he's lost, but he wasn't. Neither did he become self-righteous saying, look what I gave up. Look at all of these things. I gave it up for Christ. I lost it all. And it's not because I wanted to set the example of having my own righteousness, but I wanted the righteousness that comes from God. I wanted to be right with God based on His way. And you know what His way is? Last part of that verse. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's not what I do. It's what I allow God to do through me. 
That's what it's all about. Let's keep it real this morning because there are many giants that we're facing right now whose policies have worked better during this COVID outbreak? Those of the masker persuasion or those of the no-masker persuasion? I don't know. But I can't allow myself to say I'm better because I chose this side or that side, which leads to my own self-righteousness. Who's better? Those who plan to get a vaccine or those who don't? Those who refuse? I can't say I'm better because I chose this side or the other. Because I'm leaning toward self-righteousness in that way. You know, I may begin to think that other side is not as smart as me because they are just sheep being led to the slaughter. And I can't allow myself to be overcome with self-righteousness. Whose political party is the best? Every political party in America has some of the most ungodly people in the world associated with them. Yes, but my party is not as bad as the others because I stand with them. I'm more righteous because I stand with them. Just wait, you'll find out too late that I'm right. Good friends, things are not right or wrong because you and I agree with them. It's a lesson we have to learn when we're emptying ourselves, denying ourselves. Things are not right or wrong just because I agree or disagree with them. Things are right or wrong because of what God says about them. And you know what? I want to find myself on God's side. Not having self-righteousness, but righteousness that comes through faith. It's not about me. I have to empty myself. I have to deny myself. And good friends, that is one of the hardest things you will ever do. It's one of the hardest things I will ever do. As Christians, we must never, ever, ever allow ourselves to trust in our own righteousness, but the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He's my armor. He's the one who is there to protect me. I have to do that. As we close our lesson this morning, I want to call your attention to probably a strange place in talking about Denying self. Look at Acts chapter 20 at verse 35. Luke writes and says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. 
The word blessed there comes from the word which means simply happy. One is happier to give than to receive. But why is it that we can be more happy when we give? Why is it that that it's that way? You know, let's dig down underneath and get to the foundation of what is being said here. Why is it that we can be more happy in doing that? Well, you know what? We can be more happy when we give because we have lost sight of self. Did Jesus not deny Himself, empty Himself of all the things that He possessed as God and come down here and live on this old earth? Yes. Did Jesus not give Himself for us? Yes. Did He Himself not say that we just read in Acts 20 verse 35, it's more blessed to give and to receive? Yes. He said that. And the reason He said that is because He had emptied Himself for others. Let me say it for the umpteenth time. Self is probably one of the toughest enemies we will ever face. Those who allow themselves to be smitten with themselves will never find true joy in life. We'll always be seeking something else to please me. We'll never have that true joy in life. We'll never be contented until we learn to put the Lord and others before ourselves. We'll never be contented until that happens. The toughest enemy. What is it? Tough battle on D-Day. Tough battle at Gettysburg. Tough battle at Stalingrad. And a tough battle in the church pew. And in your house, your job, and with your friends, every single day. Maybe this morning that you've never become a Christian. I would advise you this morning to empty yourself of self and begin your dependence upon the Lord. Hear His Word. Believe that He is the Son of God. Repent of the sins that you have in your life. Make the great confession. Be immersed so that your sins can be forgiven. Maybe you've done that, but something stands between you and God this morning that you need to make right in a public way. If that's the case, and we can assist you in any way, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling thee home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love with the wrong, father and father away. Calling today, calling today.
Supper, we'll hear the words from the Apostle Peter as he recorded in 1 Peter chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, as we assemble this morning, we're so thankful for your Son. We're thankful that before we were formed, you had a plan for our salvation. We're thankful that through your Son we received this salvation. Father, we give thanks for this bread which represents the body. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, we're thankful for what this cup represents. We're thankful for the blood that was shed upon Calvary so that we might have remission of sins. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, we're also commanded to give. At this time, we'll give thanks. Father, we're thankful for our income. We're thankful for this nation. We're thankful for the talents you've given us. Father, we pray that we'll give back with a humble heart. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Again, appreciate everybody being here this morning. Uh, Mark, thank you for that lesson. Lesson, another outstanding uh, uh, message from the Word of God. Just have a few announcements that uh, may not be in the bulletin. Um, again, we uh, extend our deepest sympathies to the family of Dale Nunley, her passing. Uh, details, um, funeral will be Saturday, January the 30th, here at the church building. Uh, visitation from 12 to 2 and the funeral will be at uh, 2 p.m. Uh, those who uh, uh, who are not listed in the bulletin, it's just been given to me this morning, uh, Major Langley, he's a coach at Oakman. His mother uh, is suffering from COVID. Please keep uh, that family in your prayer. Also, uh, Dolly Tubbs, the cousin of Carol Ford and Kathy Dunn, uh, is in the hospital awaiting test results. 
Uh, Jean Tubbs, uh, the mother of uh, Ricky, Mike, and Gary, fell uh, last week, but uh, is at home and uh, and recovering. Um, there are a lot more in the bulletin. Please pick up a bulletin as you exit the building. Uh, if uh, if you haven't subscribed to the text updates, please get with Mark or Caitlin, and uh, they will uh, will subscribe you to the uh, to the text updates so you can have those. Um, are there any other announcements? If not, uh, again, please uh, keep everyone in your prayers as we uh, we go through this time of, uh, of trials and. And tribulations. I have no other announcements. Uh, ben Painter will lead us in closing prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for another day that you've given us, a uh, beautiful day to come out and to worship together and study your word, Father. And we pray that the things that we said and done here today will be in accordance with your will and pleasing unto your sight. Father, we're thankful for your grace and, and your mercy. We're thankful that we're able to approach your throne this morning in prayer to uh, bring our thoughts and our cares and our burdens to you, Father. Father, this morning we pray for everyone in the world and, and in our country and in our, in our state, Father, and in our community. Uh, we bring these folks uh, to your throne this morning, Amber Gillen, Jimmy Carrington, Mike King, Terry Joyner, Terry Applin, Ollie Wayne Shepherd, Griff Redmill, and Roy Odom, and all the other ones that are suffering that were mentioned here today, Father, that you would watch over them, that you would uh, be with the doctors and the nurses and those that are helping them, Father, just continue to be with them and strengthen them. Father, we pray for the Nunley family and the Perry family that have lost loved ones, that you would continue to comfort them as well, Father. That you would uh, look after them and put your comforting hand upon them and let them look for you for strength. Father, we're so thankful for all that you do for us. We're thankful for the church, Father, and we pray for the church, not just here, but all over the world, Father, that you would watch, uh, watch out for them and Help us continue to strengthen and to grow in your word and expand the borders of your kingdom uh, even further. Father, we are most thankful this morning for your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent on this earth to die a horrible death so that we might have that hope of eternity with you one day in heaven, Father. We're thankful that he is now sitting at your right hand and that he is being an advocate for us, Father, daily. So thankful for that, and we pray that we would never take that for granted. Father, we just pray this morning as we leave here that you would help us uh, this week to be a shining light for others, that we would put others before ourselves, and that we would search out ways to spread the gospel to as many as we can. Father, we pray that you'd bring us back at the next appointed time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.